Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host for today, Mary Fran Johnson. I'm a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about boardroom issues for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the support of CIO.com and our friends at the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live right now onto LinkedIn and Twitter, and we welcome all of our viewers to join in the conversation and send us in questions of your own. We'll be watching for those during the entire broadcast, which will be about an hour, and we'll be doing our best to respond. I'm very pleased today to be welcoming the CIO of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Michael Smith. Michael is an award-winning senior IT executive with extensive experience in leadership roles and consulting work in both private and public companies in a whole range of industries, from healthcare and retail and, in, and entertainment to finance, insurance, government, and most recently, nonprofit associations. Since 2015, Michael has been at the technology helm at the AAFP, headquartered in Leewood, Kansas, which is one of the largest national medical associations with more than 134,000 members across 50 states. Over the last five years, he's been leading a significant strategy and technology transformation at the association, essentially an end-to-end -end digital business transformation that we'll be talking a lot about over the next hour. And this is a transformation and a makeover that has been proving its value tenfold during our current global pandemic. Before he joined AAFP, Michael spent nine years in IT leadership positions at Thermo Fisher Scientific, rising up to senior director of global IT there. Prior to Thermo, he spent eight years as a senior consultant and a general manager of Quilogy, where he led a number of multi-year, multi-million dollar technology consulting engagements. During that work, he also earned a reputation for mentoring IT directors and CIOs on how to restructure their IT organizations, how to align business processes, and how to think more strategically about the benefits that technology can deliver. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I just mentioned what technology, what technology can deliver, and that has certainly been front and center for all of us as we're living through the pandemic. But before we get into a kind of bigger picture and the things you've been seeing and doing it during the COVID crisis, um, tell us more about the American Academy of Family Physicians and what its client base of members has, is like. Yeah, so the AAFP uh, was founded in 1947. Mm -hmm. And so they have um, um, approximately a little over 135,000 members. And the members consist of practicing family physicians, um, residents that have went through medical school but chosen family medicine as their specialty. Yes. And they're currently going through residency programs and medical students um, that have chosen family medicine as their specialty. And so uh, during that uh, 70 plus year history, uh, the Academy's primary purpose is to advocate for the family doctor and family medicine uh, and to make sure that uh, family medicine is the centerpiece of society's health. Yes. Well, and it's kind of, it's fascinating from our previous conversation, the sort of benefits that being a digital bait, a business has brought to AFP has been rather significant, especially, and I know we'll talk a bit more about this, about the way you deliver services and education and credits and things like that to your members. Yeah. And, and, and one of the values of, of, delivering a lot of the content and a lot of the education digitally is just the, the time that's available for family physicians to be able to further develop their um, education and their career because majority of their time is spending with patients and then also having to, to manage the administrative overhead that comes in the medical community as well. Okay. Now the, um, the AAFP is a 501c6 corporation, which is a little different from the standard nonprofit associations. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah. So the IRS has various different classifications for nonprofit organizations. So we were classified as a nonprofit, but the reason why we're a 501c6 is there's certain products that we sell that have sales tax associated with them. And, uh, and so, um, so again, it's just the way the IRS classifies those um, 
organizations. One of the challenges that faces 501c6 organizations is that even though the IRS recognizes them as non-profit, uh, software vendors would see them as a profit-based organization. And so we're not always eligible to receive nonprofit discounts. So it requires a little bit more uh, craftiness and negotiating pricing uh, for, for an association that would generally be bringing in revenue and uh, making sure that they reinvest that revenue back into the organization like a 501c3 company would. Interesting. Interesting. Have you been in that kind of negotiation situation before, or is this your first tour through the nonprofit world? Well, nonprofit for not-for-profit, I guess. It's a combo, (laughs) isn't it? Right, right. So, uh, yes, this was the, so I've done lots of negotiations over the years, but majority of the times that was with profit-based companies that were either Mm -hmm. privately held or publicly traded. Uh, But yeah, it was a a completely different beast where um, the, the pricing of some of that software is uh, is at the same level as you would have a profit-based company. And, mm-hmm. and that can be challenging for, for a nonprofit company. Yes. Well, the um, I wanted to also kind of inform my audience a little bit more about all the various services that you offer to members, because I found some of them a little unusual. I mean, you do a lot of, you offer a lot of advice, of course, and we mentioned the continuing medical education credits, but you also provide a lot of, I was looking around on your website, and you have a lot of information about the, the current, the CARES Act and financial relief for small offices of family doctors and the use of telehealth to help patients and also advocacy work that you do on behalf of the doctors. Uh, tell us about the advocacy work. What does that involve? Yeah, so um, being an association uh, and, and our constituents, our customers, our members, then those members represent a certain specialty. In our case, it's family medicine. And so with those types of associations, it's important that there's an advocacy arm um, being able to communicate not only with other organizations, but also with federal um, organizations, the importance of that particular specialty. In our case, it's family medicine. So we do have an office in Washington, D.C. that uh, their primary purpose is to advocate Uh, both on Capitol Hill as well as with the White House administration, irregardless of who the president is and uh, or who is in control as it relates to the House or the Senate. And uh, and then being able to 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 go to Capitol Hill and advocate the importance of why family medicine benefits a society as a whole. Okay. Well, and I wanted to segue next into talking about that end-to-end digital business transformation that you have been leading for the last five years. But even before we get into that, I wanted to congratulate you on your CIO 100 Innovation Award. You are one of our 2020 CIO 100 winners this year. Tell us a little bit more about that project and also the role uh, the role that it played in helping you transition pretty smoothly to a work from home situation for the 400 employees you have. Yeah. So, um, so we had submitted our initiative to, um, to CIO uh, Mm -hmm. group and specifically the title of the initiative was a journey of innovation. And, uh, and so I arrived at the AAFP in October of 2015 and uh, there were just a lot of challenges that the organization was facing from a technology perspective. Uh, they were significantly behind the technology curve, which wasn't unusual for associations, right. but it just seemed to be on a whole another scale, uh, specifically with the AAFP. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it wasn't that anybody had done anything wrong. It's just time got away from the organization. And my mm-hmm. predecessor had been there 37 years. And so you do you know, create kind of a tunnel vision of yeah. what's happening um, across the landscape of companies. And when you're with one company for that long, you know, you can kind of lose sight of what's happening across other industries and where technology is going. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so when I came on board, the organization had just recently deployed Office 2003. They had a 20-plus-year-old phone system. Um, their entire infrastructure was supported by Novell uh, Authentication. Uh, they mm-hmm. used GroupWise as their email platform, of which you know it had been 20-plus years since I'd used GroupWise, and I didn't even right. realize that was still a viable product. But but there, there is a small percentage of companies that use that, and AFP sure. was one of those. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just across the board, there were so many challenges the organization was facing. And then when you take the resources that are supporting those from an IT perspective, they were also becoming um, – 
out of touch with what the relevant technology was. So that was impacting their ability to manage their careers. So if they would have went to another organization, the technology expertise they had at that time um, would not have made them very marketable. Uh, and well, so, CEOs and boards of directors probably 10 years ago could be forgiven for thinking that, well, if it isn't broken, what do we need to fix? But starting from just a few years ago, um, I, I, I feel special empathy for the companies that have been taking their time to do the kind of digital business upgrades that are needed because this this pandemic must have hit them like uh, a bucket. It must be like that ice bucket challenge, only so much worse. You told me that you'd heard from some of your members who were surprised that you were answering the phones as early as you were. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So as as an organization, we made the decision on Monday, March 16th, I believe that was March 16th, it was a Monday, Mm -hmm. um, that we would start to work remote the next day. And so because of the transformation that we had accomplished over the past three years and and had moved the organization uh, to more relevant technologies. So, for example, moving from Novell to Active Directory and Azure and moving Mm -hmm. over to Office 365 and and, uh, email platform being Exchange. And then we implemented a lot of other relevant technologies, replacing the outdated ones. Um, Then we were already in a very good position to allow the organization to work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, so all the employees had mobile devices that were available to them. And so when we made the decision, there was really nothing we had to do. Um, it was just all the technology was there. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so Tuesday morning, everyone jumped online. They're working from their homes. Um, our call center operations, the, the way we had implemented the call center technology is that our agents could take calls from home. And, uh, and, right. and those calling into the call center would not even know the difference. So they mm-hmm. still had all the cues and everything that was available to them uh, as agents. And so, yeah, our, our members um, had recognized that we made that transition overnight, literally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so even a week uh, after that transition, we were getting comments from members of how impressed they were that AFP was able to transition because many of the companies they were working with they still didn't have the capabilities of utilizing call centers and, and being able to talk to a live person and, and things like that. So. Yes. Well, and our, um, our audience is already getting active with the questions and they want to get, they want to get right into talking about data and how you're managing okay. it. So the first question is how are you using data to inform your decision makers? You could take yeah, that so, in a number of directions. But yes. Yeah. So thinking uh, about excellent. your other senior business execs there. Right. Right. Well, excellent question. So um, like many organizations, when I came into the AFP, the organization had large amounts of data, but they were all siloed and they were all segmented. Um, And so there was no uh, centralized way of being able to bring all that data together and to provide to the organization, this is what's happening. And so my technical background, I guess my previous life before moving into a leadership role was specific in, in data analytics. And so I did a lot around data warehousing and, and predictive analytics and things like that. And so one of the um, items during my interview process is that I explained to the executive leadership why uh, data was such a vital part of any organization. And it was the opportunity to separate organizations and their competitive advantage was based upon the data that they had available and, and accessible. And so I had recommended to the executive leadership, even during my interview process, about uh, establishing kind of data uh, driven organizations. And uh, and so coming on board, then I built up a business intelligence team. Uh, We built a foundational data warehouse. Mm -hmm. Um, We moved from Tableau as as being the visualization tool um, to uh, Power BI as part Mm -hmm. of our Office 365 subscription and and so, yeah, now we're able to be in a position where we're providing to the organization uh, a 360 degree view of how the member, learner, subscriber, company, whoever it may be that's doing business with us, mm-hmm. how they're interacting and engaging with us. Um, but great. yeah, I'm, I'm a huge believer that if you're going to make strong strategic decisions, then have the data tell you um, what direction you should take. Yes. Well, and I think that that's a very commonly held and high principle with a lot of CIOs. I've I've yet to run into a chief information or digital officer who says, oh, 
I like to just go with my gut. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody's very much into the data. And so we've got more questions about it. They want to know how you're ensuring the integrity of your data. And I imagine with the digital business upgrade, you had a lot of changes in your cybersecurity. Yes, yes. So so a couple of, uh, I guess I would answer that in a couple of ways. The, the, the first way is that, you know, the standard answer around governance, right? And, and establishing an overall governance team within the organization that once you create um, whatever it may be, your centralized repository of where your data is stored, how are you going to ensure that the data remains uh, clean and accurate, mm -hmm. right? And the only way you can do that is by establishing governance processes, yes. but also making sure that the organization is adhering to those policies. And so we developed an internal team that's spread across the organization and uh, a number of our divisions where those particular divisions own a certain aspect of the data. They're responsible for making sure that they're following whatever the, the, um, the requirements are and, and, and the type of data that we create. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you're generating, you know, a, uh, a new member or a new company that you're doing business with, how are we going to classify that organization? Um, okay. Because you don't want to end up with Acme LLC, Acme Incorporated, Acme and, and Company, and they're all the same company, yeah. right? So you want to you want to create some standard ways of how to manage that data. Mm -hmm. So that was that was one aspect uh, of that. The second aspect is how do you maintain the integrity of the data? This was the challenge uh, that the AFP was facing when you had so much data that was segmented across various divisions, um, and not that. Not that anybody was doing uh, anything intentionally, mm -hmm. but a lot of times if you don't have the tools that are available, people are going to load that data into something like Excel oh, and then sure. they and they start sorting or they start um, modifying the data with all of the best intentions at, at mind. But what you end up creating is kind of a view of how of what story you want the data to tell. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you are looking at doing that from an intentional perspective, it's kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, a hidden hidden agenda is, well, I want the organization or the leadership to understand that the data says this, whether or not the data says that or not. Right. It's just that uh -huh. they've manipulated the data to show a certain way. And so one of the things I really stressed to the organization and to leadership is having kind of that foundational data warehouse and utilizing visualization tools whatever's available in the data, that's what's going to be displayed to the organization. Mm -hmm. And whether that's good news or bad news doesn't matter because from my perspective, as long as the data is accurate and true, mm -hmm. there is no concept of bad news. It's just we could do better. So what is the bad news related to the data telling us that we need to modify to make sure yeah. that we're getting the result that we want to actually get? Well, and probably even more importantly, what are the surprising factors we're turning up in data? Yes. Yes. Yep. The um, and this is a, another question um, about this is more about your digital transformation in general. Wondering if enterprise architecture was an enabler in all of that. I say that again. The uh, question is about enterprise architecture and how much of an enabler that. Uh, proved to be during the digital transformation of the last three plus years? Yeah, uh, so a, a huge part. Uh, and again, this was something that didn't exist within AFP when I came in, because again, there were a lot of, in the same way that the data was very segmented and siloed, mm -hmm. then applications were very segmented and siloed as well. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, a, um, unless you work for an association, you may not necessarily understand some of the, the the applications that are used, but with many associations, kind of their primary centralized system is called an association management system. And, and so you would generally see that as kind of sort of like a supply chain ERP. And, yep. uh, and the organization was utilizing a product that um, was really kind of a Frankenstein system, that you had the base association management system and then you had all these plugins that were added to it, whether you wanted it to be an e-commerce system, whether you wanted it to be an event management system, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And, and so when you create these Frankenstein systems, you can imagine the administrative overhead that comes to maintaining those, even if you want to go from one upgrade version to the next. Yes. And, and so the organization was really struggling with being able to uh, manage uh, 
how these systems were being administered, you know, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so what I also established was that I wanted to build kind of the concept of an enterprise architect and an application architect. And so I had two uh, internal resources that were already employed by the AAFP when I came on board that were, I mean, extremely talented from a technical perspective. And so they became uh, my enterprise and application architects. And so their entire goal was to look at the landscape of AFP, understand Mm -hmm. what is AFP trying to accomplish, uh, and then let's make sure that we build the technology that enables the organization to do that. And I I get it. I'm saying all these buzzwords and everything that would be from a technology perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we uncovered out of all that and doing kind of a catalog and a portfolio of the applications, we realized that what was happening is that every time the organization would put in a request to change something, Mm -hmm. because you had these loosely connected applications, you created what I call a snowball effect. So you modify this particular application and what it ends up doing is it breaks these three or four other applications. So now you got to go and touch those three or four other applications. And what became kind of a a simple fix Mm -hmm. became a pretty inundated request that would require a lot of regression testing before we could deploy that simple fix into production. So the ability to go to market really quickly was, was creating a challenge to the organization. And so as part of that whole transformation, I mean, we literally just uh, flipped the organization uh, on its head uh, mm-hmm. from the perspective of an enterprise architecture. And so we looked at implementing technologies that create more ecosystems than we would have as individual applications. So since mm-hmm. then, we've implemented Workday for HR and accounting. We've implemented Salesforce to be kind of the primary ecosystem where mm-hmm. a lot of our applications sit on that. And the way those ecosystems work is the ability to integrate into those and create kind of an enterprise ecosystem mm-hmm. um, makes the ability to manage change and manage the organization being able to go to market so much easier. And it's created more of a seamless experience. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, I, I think, one of the very impressive Uh, technology aspects in general that has rolled out with the move to cloud is the not just thinking about things as a platform where you're stuck in a particular platform, but this idea of ecosystems. Mm -hmm. I hear more and more about that from CIOs and it seems like a pretty, it seems like a pretty terrific way to keep the organization relatively agile and nimble to all the changes that are coming, uh, all the kind of changes we're living through right now. Um, I wanted to also uh, remind our audience that I'm here talking, if you're joining us a little late, I'm here talking to CIO Michael Smith from the American Academy of Family Physicians. He did an amazing digital transformation of the last three years, three to five years at AAFP that just earned the organization a CIO 100 award. So we invite you to join the conversation. We're streaming live on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we're watching for questions from the audience. And we've just had a couple of really good ones about enterprise architecture, about securing your data, data integrity. So keep the great questions coming. Now, Michael, we've been talking about all this, and and it might sound like you've got a staff of hundreds of people at your disposal to do all this. You've got a 400-employee organization. Tell us about the size and the structure of your IT organization. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the AFP has about 405 employees, Mm -hmm. uh, of which uh, IT represents about 10% of the overall population. So we have about 40 uh, individuals that work within IT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, from an association perspective, we're a, a fairly large association and we would be in the top five to 10 percent of the yeah. largest associations in the United States. Um, uh, when I made the transition to AAFP, I came from companies where the employee base was 70,000 employees and, and you know, uh, uh, over a thousand IT resources spread across the world. Uh, So it was a major transition for me as well. When I came to become the CIO, one of my biggest concerns was, was AAFP going to be challenging enough when you Mm -hmm. came from a global organization with so many employees across so many different countries? Um, Mm -hmm. The AAFP hasn't, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, the AAFP hasn't uh, disappointed me. (laughs) It has (laughs) been, it has been an incredibly challenging um, uh, just adventure that I've been on. Uh, 
you don't find yourself coming to work and doing Sudoku puzzles during on how mm-hmm. I see technology. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, but but the IT organization is segmented like you would see a traditional IT organization, where we have okay. an infrastructure team that is responsible for managing our uh, infrastructure as well as kind of our cybersecurity um, mm-hmm. initiatives uh, in different areas around securing. Uh, the assets that the organization has from a technology perspective. Mm-hmm. But we also have a service desk that uh, the organization can call in or submit a service te- uh, service desk ticket that would, again, be help desk, desk side support. Um, we then have business analysts. We have developers. We have QA resources. We have business analysts. And then we also have another group that you wouldn't necessarily see in a lot of organizations, and specifically you wouldn't see and associations, and that's a user experience group. So a lot of the systems that we develop, we also have user experience uh, resources that uh, look at how we've developed the application, how the application flows, and then what are some possibilities of how we can improve the experience Mm -hmm. that the individual is having with the applications they interact with that we've developed. Yes. Well, and that... um, um I've got another question from the audience, but I'm actually going to save it to the point when we start talking about emerging technologies and AI and that sort of thing. But I wanted to ask you now, you made a point when we talked earlier that I thought was really interesting and something a lot of people are not thinking about yet. We see a lot of news stories about how the COVID crisis has either been overwhelming hospital staffs or has the potential to do that if we weren't all social distancing. But you made the point that the next overwhelm wave is going to land in the offices of our family doctors and internal medicine specialists and those kind of folks. Explain why that's coming. Yeah, so um, so the, the first wave of COVID-19 dealt a lot with hospitals, right? People having to go to the emergency room and they're working directly with the nurses. And there may be family physicians that are employed by hospitals that were also uh, engaged in those hospital visits as well. Sure. But as we move more to testing and, and mm-hmm. having the overall population go through testing, whether that be antibody testing or whether it just be testing that if you're positive for the virus or not, a lot mm-hmm. of that is going to be done by family physicians, right? You're going to go mm-hmm. in and, and meet with your family doctor and your doctor is going to have the ability to be able to, to perform these tests. Uh, and again, it's not that they weren't necessarily involved in that first wave. It's just a lot of it was specifically geared toward hospitals and ERs, mm-hmm. where now it will be more of a structured approach of how do we get everyone uh, in the country to go through testing to make sure that we understand from a tracing perspective where are hot pockets within yeah. uh, the uh, the country, but also understanding who has had the virus already and who mm-hmm. hasn't. And, and from the medical community, there's, a, there's a, a huge push of being able to get to what's called herd immunity, yes. right? Where you have a large portion of the, the population that has already had it. And, uh, and that's where, again, the ultimate goal is getting to eradicate the, the virus. Yeah. Um, and, and then again, the hope is that within the next year or so, there'll be a vaccine that's available that people can get like they would get like the flu shot to be mm-hmm. able are are not susceptible to that that virus. So, so yeah, lots of things happening that impact our our members as family yeah. physicians. How are you bracing for that wave from an IT perspective? Is there anything new or different that you need to do uh, in terms of the technologies that are serving your members now? Um, not from a technology perspective, and again, because our transformation has enabled the mm-hmm. the marketing and our continuing med- med- Medical education group, our medical education group, our practice advancement group, all those particular divisions within AAFP that then develop content and communicate that content through our website, through our social media channels, through our continuing medical education, any number of those things, that technology is available and is enabled. And so um, there, there has been a significant push for COVID-19 content and educational information to make sure that all of our members understand not only what um, the medical community is saying in general, but also how to best um, treat uh, the patients that come in, but at the same time, making sure that you're protected, um, you know, again, through personal protective equipment and different things like that, 
yeah. to make sure that you as a family physician are not becoming susceptible to the virus because you're seeing all these people that may be infected. Yes. Um, and actually, this my next question ties very well into one from our audience about how your organization may be moving toward AI. We've all been seeing a lot of stories about the role that artificial intelligence and various like machine learning technologies may play in some of these medical solutions to the COVID crisis. So it's, in terms of the emerging technologies and things you keep an eye on, are you doing anything significant right now in the AI field? And if not, what interests you most about it from the AAFP's perspective? Yeah, no, definitely we are uh, from an AI and, and machine learning perspective. Um, it, and again, you have to look at it from what is the number one challenge that family physicians have within their ability to see patients. It really comes down to the administrative complexity, right? So if you're a family physician, for you to be able to make sure that, number one, you are recording everything associated with what type of activities you're doing with your patient, mm -hmm. you're going to generally put that into an EHR and EMR system. Um, and, and so there's there's regulations and there's administrative uh, complexities associated with those. Uh, just the nature of EHRs are not necessarily a simple applications and simple systems. But also when you're looking at uh, being employed by a hospital or are you owning your own practice, then many of your patients that you're going to be seeing predominantly, many of them are going to be per, you know paying for their services through insurance. And so you're going to also need to be reimbursed by the insurance companies based upon the services that you're doing. Yes. Well, a lot of the information that you have to provide to the insurance uh, comes out of those EHR systems and has to be documented, you know, very thoroughly. Mm -hmm. um, so, so from that perspective, um, you know, that just the the challenges that exist for the family physicians and how technology can help is that we're looking at ways of how we can then take advantage of artificial intelligence and machine learning to streamline those processes. And so we actually have a different division within uh, the AAFP that actually are, and they're in prototype development of being able to create uh, certain automated processes of how it could streamline activities that's happening while the phys physician is meeting with the patient. And, and again, it kind of reduces that administrative uh, burden on the physician. It's not reducing the complexity because that's just built into the systems, but how that information, that data is collected, it streamlines that to, uh, to allow the, the physician to have more focused time with the patient and not mm -hmm. having to, um, you know, either have their back to the patient because they're typing into the EHR or, you know, their head down where they're not able to, to communicate face to face with the patient because they've got to document all this information into their respective EHR system. Yes. And of course, when you say e EHRs, we're talking about electronic health records. Mm -hmm. And I know yeah. we've all, I think we've all had that experience being at the doctors. I know with my own doctors, they spend half their time complaining about how much they hate technology. <laughs> and yeah, but that's, that's kind of as universal these days as talking about the weather, you know, it, it <laughs> is, you it love is. it, you hate it, you need yeah. it, you don't want it. Uh, it all goes back and forth. Got another question from our audience that with COVID and remote working, there's great interest in the collaboration and communication tools you're using. Now you mentioned the Salesforce.com platform, and I know you're you've got a big rollout of Office 365 that has been uh, completed. But are there other collaboration tools that you find are very valuable? Yeah. So so maybe if I can take a little bit step back and again provide kind of the. The big picture. Historical back, yeah, the historical yeah. background leading up to what, what's been implemented thus far. So again, when I, when I mentioned I came on board in 2015, and uh, the, the technologies that were in, in use at that time, there was no concept of communication and collaboration. Um, because again, you're, you're dealing with, uh, in 2015, they had just implemented Office 2003. So okay. granted, you had some features related to Word and Excel, but the ability to communicate or collaborate mm -hmm. in an existing document, if you remember back in those days, the only way that you could have somebody modify a document was to save it. And maybe they would add an annotation at the end of the file to say, you know, initials, this person's updates, mm -hmm. right? And then it go to the next person. And by the time that you had 15 people viewing that document, you either had V1 through V15, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then the ability of being able to, 
to go back to a later version was just kind of an administrative nightmare. And, and so with moving over to Office 365, as I'm sure everybody that's on the call or listening uh, the knows that that was built with the concept of communication and collaboration as kind of the centerpiece. And so okay. we have not only taken advantage of Office 365, but we've also implemented Microsoft Teams mm -hmm. and created a Teams uh, environment where the organization is able to communicate with each other. From a audio video conferencing, we moved to WebEx. Um, mm -hmm. to where we're able to seamlessly communicate with each other again through video conferencing, but also through whiteboard capabilities and then integrating that back into Office 365 documents. Um, we utilize Jabber as our instant messaging tool, but of course you've got uh, instant messaging capabilities with Microsoft Teams as well. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we've created this environment with all of the new technologies that we've implemented Literally, when the organization moved 100% to remote, there was nothing that the organization was doing previously that they weren't able to do now. That's unless they, they didn't have to learn brand new technologies. Mm. Right. But some of the technologies was still relatively new. So mm. they were getting used to it. Uh, and then, of course, it was thrust upon them that now this became your primary way of working on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Um, it's also proven to be a, uh, a great adoption tool to where now we have a lot of our staff that have become very strong intermediate mm -hmm. uh, 365 different tools like that and uh, so no it's uh, again the ability for us to make that pivot and move to 100% remote was a very seamless process um, for us because the technology the infrastructure the ecosystem was all there for us to just take advantage of. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, and in some cases we've discovered that some of our divisions are actually much more working than they were working in the office um, because of the technology enables them to do what they need to do. Well, that's, that's going to be a very interesting shift when offices start reopening, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. the organizations that, you know, prided themselves on being mostly we all come into the building are going to everybody in every industry now is starting to rethink that. And yeah, have you yeah. started to have those kind of discussions at AAFP as well, that there's some people that say, and I'm raising my hand, I'm going to stay home. Thanks. Yeah. Um, not so much from a long-term perspective. Of course, we've talked about it phasing in. So yeah. we're going to actually have people start going back into the office, but it's going to be a small percentage of staff mm -hmm. that will be actually going back into the office, whereas yeah. everyone else can continue to, to stay remote. But as an organization, we're also in a transitionary period because uh, our CEO, who's been our CEO for 16 years, um, mm -hmm. has been um, planning uh, their retirement for some time. And so their actual retirement is happening this summer. And so they've already named uh, the replacement for that CEO. And so it'll be interesting to see as that transition happens, you know, mm -hmm. is there a different perspective or a different mindset of working in the office versus working remote? Okay. Because from a technology perspective, we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether you're in the office or working remote, you can still mm -hmm. get your job done. It just now becomes a personal preference for the company or personal preference for the employee themselves. Or a personal preference for the new boss. That's true too. When yes. the CEO arrives, that's always a very interesting set of conversations yes. with senior yes. managers at the company. Yep. Well, related to that, and I can tell how we're getting a lot of close attention paid to our conversation here. So this is a great follow-on question. How do you keep your staff engaged to the company and motivated to reach the targets that you set during the COVID-19 triggered remote working? Um, are there particular targets that, I mean, I know that you've got a number of plates in the air with your different technology initiatives because the thing about you can win an award for digital transformation, but that doesn't mean it's done. So you've got lots of things sure. that are still sure. going. So how are you keeping them engaged with the company and its goals and what's been happening during the remote working in the home office yeah. and all? Yeah. So, so a couple of ways. Um, first of all, um, from an IT perspective, we're an agile shop. Um, yes. So from, from, an, from an IT perspective, we're kind of used to doing daily standups. Uh, mm -hmm. And being able to um, to work on various projects and activities from an agile Scrum perspective, 
Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have introduced the concept of agile principles within the organization as well. So many of our divisions have adopted the concepts of agile with how they do work. And, uh, and so they then also have daily standups for various different activities that divisions outside of IT um, mm -hmm. are, are performing. So again, with the use of the technology with WebEx, people are still continuing to do the daily standups. It's just now, instead of it being face-to-face, -face, it's through a video conference, a video connection. Right. And then we've also, with the technology that we've been enabled. We also are providing um, town halls for the overall population of the organization. So our executive leadership kind of comes into like a Brady Bunch um, look and feel of all of the different uh, senior leadership being there on the screen. Mm -hmm. And then various different people from a leadership team are providing updates to all the employees via a town hall. And we have that as a moderated service through WebEx. Um, and that's keeping all of the employees engaged of what's happening across the company. Whereas each division is also continuing to meet on a regular basis. It's just now through video conferencing. That's great. Well, and that sounds actually, I mean, for a relatively small organization for 40 people on the IT staff, that sounds a lot like what I've been hearing from much larger enterprises as well. Yeah. 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 And then we also do a town hall on mm -hmm. a weekly basis every Wednesday. So the town halls for, the company as a whole, those have been happening about once every three to four weeks just to keep the employees in, in, informed of what's happening. But every single Wednesday evening, we also have a community hall for our mm -hmm. um, members. And, uh, and so that is actually a, a moderated service to a third-party company okay. um, that then hosts that town hall. And, and we can have anywhere from you know, four to 6,000 people on that town hall across the country and where we have our medical experts um, and, and staff that's communicating things to the members or the members are able to then stay connected with, uh, with our staff. Um, but that has actually uh, been incredibly popular amongst yeah. our members and our members have been saying a lot of great things uh, about those uh, community town halls. Well, and what a great way too to uh, keep a finger on the pulse of the customer experience. Yeah. Like you mentioned that uh, the organization had never had uh, UX design, user experience design as part of what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Have you learned anything from those town halls that are going to affect your, uh, your technology strategy going forward? Is there anything that you're going to accelerate the development and rollout of or something that you put on a back burner because it seems less important now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, not to not to come across, um, I guess, nonchalantly as a way, but but again, because the technology has been there and enabled the organization to make that pivot. I mean, literally, the way we operate as a company is is literally not any different than what it was when we were working in the office. Yeah. So everything is still on schedule. Everything is moving forward. I, I would say there were a couple of uh, projects that we delayed to go mm -hmm. live just simply because the organization outside of IT had to pivot to be able to provide more information about COVID-19 when that first started coming out to educate yeah. our members. Uh, but we're kind of at the latter stages of that process. And so, um, so the organization is, is now, you know, continuing to move forward with our initiatives. Um, we of course wrapped up our three year strategy now um, uh, here in um, it'll officially be completed uh, and finished May 31st of 2020, mm -hmm. um, because that's the end of our fiscal year. So our fiscal year is June okay. through May. Right. And, uh, and so again, all, uh, it's, it's just business as usual. The only division mm -hmm. that's probably been the most impacted, um, would be our facilities group, the group that manages the building. And yeah. so we still have a couple of people that are in the office along with security that's in there on a daily basis. But, uh, mm -hmm. but, but really the only things that have been impacted is if we have mail or packages being delivered, then yeah. facilities is coordinating with the appropriate people and then uh, setting up an appointment for those mm -hmm. people to come to the office. So we don't have a lot of people coming at unplanned, unscheduled mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Um, but as I'd mentioned before, we're now in the process of starting the transition of having people go back into the mm -hmm. office. And so effective June 1st, we'll have a small percentage of people that will go back into the office and then we'll evaluate for three to four weeks and then increase it from there. And, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all of it's dependent upon if we have peaks and spikes again with everyone kind of being reinduced, reintroduced back into society, you know, yeah. if we need to, you know, pull back and, and try again at a later date or continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, we had another, uh, another question thinking about all those, well, think about the entire company working from home. This question's been coming up a lot in our leadership live discussions. How do you address data security and compliance to mitigate any data leakage, considering the large amount of data processing that's now happening from home. Yeah, um, again, it's all around the cybersecurity processes that we put in place to secure Mm -hmm. that data and to make sure that only people that have access to the necessary data is getting access to that data. And nothing um, significant had to change when everyone. No, no, right, yeah, and uh, and so so again, if if they're going to be getting into specific data that is housed with inside our organization, they're connecting to our VPN, mm-hmm. and that data is secured through our VPN. Um, but it's also important to note that um, as an association, we advocate for the family physician, so mm-hmm. we're not storing patient data. Um, good. That's a good because point. that's not the type of business that we we are. So we're not actually storing anything associated with medical patient data. Um, mm-hmm. We we may have at different times where if we're working on a grant or something like that, where we're focusing on aggregating data mm-hmm. as it relates to um, providing some type of medical uh, information that would go into a medical journal, but that would be more aggregated uh, at a high level. Um, but, but again, inside the company, we just don't store any type of HIPAA related data because that doesn't apply to the type of organization we are. Yeah. Well, you would have, because you have a, um, continuing medical education and Mm -hmm. you sell products to the members for certain things. So you mainly, it's essentially, you have a retail operation. Yeah. You, you'd kind of see it at, from, from that perspective. Right. Tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit more about the CME credits and the continuing medical education, because that has changed in what the AAFP is able to offer with the transformation in your digital services over the last few years. What is the organization doing now that you couldn't do three to five years ago? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. So um, if I can also kind of, again, go back into history and maybe give everyone uh, a lesson on if you went to medical school and you wanted to choose a specialty, what does that look like? So, of course, you're going to go to undergraduate school, you're going to get your college degree, and then you decide I'm going to go into medical school. Mm -hmm. Well, generally, medical schools are going to be four-year programs. Uh, if if, If you've chosen to go to a medical school, irregardless of what your specialty is, your first three years in medical school are going to be the same across Mm -hmm. all students. Mm -hmm. And you're just learning about medicine in general and and anatomy and biology and anything associated with that. But then as you're coming into your junior year at medical school, then you're going to be starting to connect with your advisor and your advisor is going to be asking, okay, you need to make a decision. What are you going to specialize in? Are -hmm. you going to become an orthopedic surgeon? Are you going to become a cardiologist? Are you going to become a neurosurgeon, a spinal surgeon? Uh, Are you going to become a family doctor? And those are what's considered medical specialties. And so your fourth year of medical school is going to then be focused on whatever your specialty is. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that you may have to go on to further education beyond that fourth year, depending upon what your specialty is. And you have said, hey, I want to become a family doctor. So now you then focus on family medicine as your fourth year. And then you're going to go into a residency program. And generally, those residency programs are three-year residency programs. But every once in a while, depending upon uh, the type of specialty in family medicine, it may be a four-year program. Um, And so you then go through the residency program. And once you finish the residency program, you then can then take your medical, uh, you know, bar the best thing I can explain to would be like the medical bar exam where you then take your exam to become a licensed doctor. And you have Uh, a number, you have a number of students in the organization. So you're actually fairly well tapped into this group, even when they are going into their fourth year medical school and their residencies. uh, Correct. But generally a a medical student is not going to have any desire to be a member of the 
uh, AAFP unless they've chosen family medicine as their specialty. So yes, we do have access to all the medical students, but uh, only a percentage of them will actually become members. And as a student member, it's a free membership because, of course, they've got a lot of other costs <laughs> that they're dealing with in medical school. So we provide that as a free membership to our students. And then we provided a, a heavily discounted membership as a resident. And then your mm -hmm. first year um, being a practicing family physician, the fee is 50% of what your annual fee would be to allow yourself to get onto your feet, start your practice. And then starting in year two, then you're going to have a full annual membership due uh, that they pay to, to be a member. And so uh, as you kind of go through that process, then once you become a practicing family physician, meaning you're licensed in whatever state you're in uh, to be able to practice medicine, mm -hmm. then that's all being managed by the American Board of Family Medicine. Yeah. And so the ABFM requires that for you to remain in good standing, uh, there's certain you know things that you have to do as a family doctor, as any doctor would have to be, you know, to make sure that you're providing a holistic care, but you're doing that in a very, um, you know, sure the continuing education aspects, which you're saying, right? But right, yeah. but also making sure that you're doing things that are, you know, on the up and up as a medical practitioner, right? Mm -hmm. The best way I can say is that you're not being a medical quack or something like that, but you have to be on on good good standing mm -hmm. with the American Board of Family Medicine, and how that uh, that continues is that they require that over a three year period you have to complete 150 continuing medical education credits. Mm -hmm. However you want to do that over that three years is entirely up to you. We recommend to our members to balance it that you're completing 50 credits per year mm -hmm. over a three-year period to remain in good standing. Yeah. So as uh, the AAFP, not only are we a medical education provider, we're also a medical education accreditor, meaning that if you're developing a course it's got to be accredited with the American Board of Family Medicine to be recognized as a reported credit. And this is actually the revenue generating piece of your business. This is why you're a 501c6 corporation. Um, yes, yeah, sort of, sort of. I mean, there's other products that kind of fall into that, that category. Okay. Um, but, but yes, so a member, when you become a member, if you're, if you're taking a CME course, you know, there's additional money that you're paying to take that course. Mm -hmm. If you're a, a, creator of CME education, then you're going to go through an accreditor to be able to accredit that. Otherwise, if you're developing a course, but it's not been accredited, it doesn't count toward those 150 CME credits. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's only three organizations in the United States that accredit family medicine, continuing medical education. One mm -hmm. is the American Medical Association. The other <laughs> one is the American Osteopathic Association, which is AOA. And then there's the AAP. And so um, as you take these particular courses, then we also provide as a service being a member that you can then uh, record your CME credits, and then we will send them on behalf of you as the member to the American Board of Family Medicine. And so a member can come into their portal at any given time and see how many credits have they completed in that three-year period and how many do they have left. Mm -hmm. And then we provide them also suggestions of you know, how they can continue to stay on track so they don't find themselves mm -hmm. so we manage that for them as well okay well and to fast forward a bit on that um you'd mentioned that there's now more you're more able to offer an immersive learning experience essentially developing more of a curriculum uh that you can offer through the various digital platforms is that will that change a great deal now that you for the foreseeable future you won't be doing in-person education gatherings or conferences yeah um i mean that it's kind of two different things one where now you're forced to have a virtual event versus a face-to-face -face event but as part of our next three-year strategy one of our pillars is immersive learning okay and what that really is doing is creating kind of a um a journey for this particular member to be able to, to learn more about a specific medical topic. So historically, someone would be saying, I need to learn something about this medical topic because number one, I need to achieve CME credit. But number two, I need to, to learn that, you know, if something has changed in the medical community of how we treat a patient, you know, based upon X, mm -hmm. then we're providing that education to that, that family doctor. 
with the immersive learning concept, it, it's, it's creating a multiple, multitude of different channels that this particular member can then engage with the AAP. So maybe it's a, it's a six-month period to where the first month is a podcast. Mm-hmm. The second month is an actual CME event. The third one might be that we're connecting them with other members in a geographic region of the United States where they're being able to connect in a community platform where they're able to communicate with each other, share best practices, things like that. And then the fourth one to this journey utilizing technology to provide bite-sized information for the physician because, again, time is of the essence for a family doctor when they're spending majority of their day seeing patients and managing kind of the administrative complexity that comes with that, um, you start to run out of time in the day to be able to continue to provide learning and professional development for yourself. Okay. So by creating this immersive learning, we're providing this in, in a different way and, and, and it kind of meets the physician where they're at. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, we've touched on some of the emerging tech and the different trends that you're following, but I wanted to uh, pivot for these last few minutes of our conversation here to talk about leadership lessons. We mentioned at the beginning how many different industries you've been involved with, either as a consultant or as an IT leader um, at some level in the organization. Tell me what kind of advice you would give to fellow CIOs or to people that are coming up the ladder in technology organizations for what you have learned in leading technology operations and digital transformations across various industries. Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, one piece of advice would be that if anyone ever had the opportunity to work in consulting, take Mm -hmm. advantage of that. Um, Because again, in every project that you're working for every engagement that you're working on. Mm-hmm. And so I really had the, the, the opportunity being in consulting to, to say on one particular engagement, I could be re- working with state, local, federal government. Mm-hmm. In another engagement, I could be working with an entertainment organization. Yeah. The next one in financial insurance, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. so you kind of create this broad view of how technology is used across various different organizations and industries. Yes. And then being able to take that knowledge and be able to know what is possible, but also looking at all these different experiences of what would be the best option for the organization that you work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to bring, you know, 20 plus years of experience into the AAP to be able to, to, to see how they operated as an organization and, and the capabilities of what technology could do. And being able to take past experiences that may have not even been associated with the industry AFP is part of, but how that so three years. Okay. Very good answer. I think when we talked about this earlier too, you mentioned bringing a certain amount of boldness to the plate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I think that uh, as a CIO, I mean, there's lots of challenges and lots of pressures that's sitting on the CIO's shoulders. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the best things that we can do as a CIO is that we lead with courage and we lead with boldness mm-hmm. and that we um, then are able to communicate with our executive leadership that if we truly believe this is important for the organization, then you know, lead with that courage and lead with that boldness. Now, the question is, is the organization going to listen to you or not? And if not, then you know, I guess you need to make some personal and professional decisions mm-hmm. <laughs> associated with working with that organization. But, but we know how technology can enable an organization. And I think um, being able to put office politics and everything else to a side just to lead the pack and to really um, provide what that direction that your organization needs to do and lead with that courage and that boldness of knowing what is right. And, uh, and then hopefully being able to follow that up with quick wins to be able to provide value to the organization that they would. Yes. Uh, they, uh, again, that's exactly what we Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's great. And that actually, um, that segues into a lot of the similar advice that I've heard from CIO friends over the years, where especially if I ask people, what do they wish they had done differently? And they usually say, I wish I had had more of the courage of my convictions, you know, to stand up and not to sit back and think that the business is in the driver's seat. Today, it's very much a shared responsibility with technology and all the business leaders. So I want to uh, thank you so much for all of your time and your wisdom today, Michael. It was really a pleasure talking with you. And if you, uh, for our faithful members of the audience, if you joined us late, you can, uh, don't worry, we um, will by later today be posting the full conversation on, uh, you can watch the full episode on CIO.com and also on IDG's YouTube channel, which is called IDG Tech Talk. And I would recommend that you take a moment to subscribe to that so you never have to miss a Leadership Live conversation again. And you can also catch us as an audio podcast because we issue a podcast of this entire conversation to all the different podcast platforms out there. And I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I was talking with CIO Michael Smith of the American Academy of Family Physicians. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode on CIO Leadership Live, which will be on Tuesday, May 26th at noon Eastern, when I'll be joined by Anupam Kare, who is the CIO of Oshkosh Corporation. Thanks so much for being with us today. Stay well, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you again next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.